the Mike Lupica Podcast. We are back now with the great Mike Lupica. He's one of the country's Mike most Lupica prominent Mike Lupica has covered just about every sport. Candid interviews with legends he calls friends. I was talking to Jordan about Woods after the basketball game mm-hmm. the other night. Everybody wants everybody in sports to be the next this guy, the next this guy. And Michael said, no, he's the first Tiger. In your face questions. How much of a dope is he? Compelling. A billion dollar industry, the biggest we've ever had in sports in this country, often comes down to a flip of the coin. This is the Mike Lupica Podcast. Here's Mike Lupica. Hello and thanks for joining us on the Mike Lupica Podcast. Today we'll be talking with a great friend and an even better journalist. You see her all over ESPN. She now writes for The Undefeated. Her name is Jamel Hill. But before we get started with Jamel, a word from Gillette. Every morning I use my Gillette razor. I know what I'm getting, a great shave. It's been a consistent part of my daily routine and, and, and my dad's for such a long time. My dad used a Gillette, so there was never anything else in our family. My Pro Glide and Fusion Cream give me the close, comfortable shave I'm looking for. Gillette offers a variety of shaving products for every guy. The new Gillette 3 and Gillette 5 razors start at $7.99 and deliver even more options for every guy by offering trusted quality at an affordable price. The Gillette 3 and the Gillette 5 are both available in stores. For guys looking to get Gillette Performance delivered to their door, you can find Gillette 5 at GilletteOnDemand.com. Check it out today. That's GilletteOnDemand.com. Welcome back to the Mike Lubica Podcast. We are joined today by one of my great pals in the business and someone who has become such an important voice in sports and not just in sports sometimes. Um... I first started reading her uh, in earnest when she was a columnist in Orlando. And uh, before long, she was sitting next to John Saunders and Mitch and Bob and me on the sports reporters. And, you know, we just had no idea at the time that we were creating a media monster. Uh, she now write, columnizes for the uh, the undefeated at ESPN. And I am happy to join have her join me on the Gillette hotline today. Hey, Jamel Hill. Hey, what's going on, Mike Lupica? Well, a lot's going on. There's so much to talk about. But let's start with, you know, I I obviously follow you on, on Twitter because, you know, who knows, who knew at the time when, you know, that it would be like against the law if you didn't follow you on Twitter. But, you know, we're all watching the horror of what's playing out in Texas with these kids uh, being taken away from their parents and tent cities and everything that is supposed to be. Uh, anathema to the country that we still are supposed to aspire to be. And you were quite moved by uh, Rachel Maddow uh, breaking down on uh, television last night as she addressed the things that I just described. Yeah, um, I think people sometimes uh, forget that when you're in her position where you're an incredible journalist and obviously her job every night is to deliver news and context. And as journalists process this information, it's not as if it doesn't affect us also. It kind of reminded me of two very specific things. Um, a friend of mine uh, won a Pulitzer Prize years ago because he was one of the first reporters on the scene. In fact, he was the first reporter on the scene at Columbine. And um, him, as well as the team of Denver Post reporters, um, provided excellent coverage over, at the time, what was considered to be a unique event. And we see how much that has changed since then. Um, and after everything was over and um, he was left with a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder because of everything that he witnessed, some of the carnage he witnessed that day. And, um, 
you know, there's been, uh, you know, certainly, you know, workshops done and people have spoken about how journalists in the moment as we're reporting on these crises that we can experience the same emotions that the viewers are experience, experiencing as well. And even though we're supposed to be objective and supposed to be somewhat distanced from it, uh, it affects us too. And the other thing it reminded me of, and um, I know you can relate to this, I mean, both of us can on a very extremely personal level, but um, the day that, that John Saunders passed, um, we found out about it, uh, we as in Mike, uh, Michael Smith and I, uh, my former co-host, we we were told about it about 40 minutes before we were going on air. And this is when you were doing his and her in the morning on ESPN. Correct. This is when we were doing his and hers and our show was on at noon. And um, we were told about John about 40 minutes before we were about to go on air. And as you might imagine, um, that's a lot to deal with right before you're supposed to go on television. And so I was doing my best to try to emotionally kind of disconnect myself and maybe deal with the feelings I was feeling later, but it was hard. I mean, I was almost bawling in the middle of the newsroom and, um, but I held it in, but we both decided that we wanted to talk about John at the top of the show and, um, express our condolences, uh, as well as give our own thoughts about what he meant to us. And I was maybe a sentence in and I just started crying right on television. And that, uh, you know, I'd never been put in that position before, and I was, uh, it felt like an eternity. And so I imagine for Rachel Maddow that that felt like an eternity. Um, but what I found in the in the response, and I'm sure she's, I can tell just by the social media response uh, to what, how to that emotion she showed, is that what she finds is that a lot of people that, that watch us every day, um, they they and I don't want to say enjoy because it's something so tragic, but there's something relatable and human about that, that in that moment, they allow us to kind of take off this hat as journalist or broadcaster or entertainer um, for your afternoon sports show and, and just be real. And so I appreciated the fact that she allowed herself that moment not to be so distant and disconnected to bring you something other than just, OK, here are the facts. Here's what's going on. We're talking to my pal, Jamel Hill, uh, one of the most talented people in our business on the Gillette Hotline. And let's stop with John Saunders just for a second, Jamel. I, I was on a family vacation, as you know, in Hawaii, of all places, the day that John died. And, you know, I was waking up really early in the morning because of the, uh, the time change. And I had left my phone in the kitchen to charge overnight. And I, you know, like I was waking up insanely early. And I, so I was out making the coffee in the morning, the kids and my wife are still asleep. And I look, and it was like my phone had exploded overnight. And Joe Valeri, our producer from the sport, please call uh, uh, Mitch album. Please call Bob Ryan. Please call on and on. And on. I'm so sorry. And I, and, and when I saw the first message, it was that John Saunders had died. And I, I don't know if people who simply knew John from his immense body of work uh, as a play-by-play guy and as the host of the college football show and and obviously the host of our show after he took over for, for Dick Schaap when Dick Schaap died, I, I, I'm not sure they understand how important a figure and a mentoring figure he was particularly to young African-American men and women in our business. Yeah, he, uh, 
John and I, like, not, I think it was, I forget which uh, NABJ it was. It was the one that preceded the year um, before he passed. And he and I had done a panel together about, um, you know, mentorship. Uh, and NABJ, for people who don't know, is the National Association of Black Journalists. It's the largest um a minority journalism organization in the country. And he and I had done a panel together about, you know, mentorship and just giving some advice to young people of color about how they can navigate this business. And he reached a point in, in his career, I'm sure he was always this way, but like really, especially those last few years that I, I knew him, um, he made it a point, uh, a priority to mentor um, a lot of the people of color at ESPN. He had conversations with Mike and I all the time, uh, just, you know, helping us, guiding us, um, championing. He, you know, he was a champion for us um, in the executive offices because obviously as somebody with his career and stature at ESPN, he had the ears of people, um, you know, all throughout the corner offices. And so they took what he said to heart. And so he was always advocating on our behalf, and he would text me all the time watching the show, and um, it meant everything to me and to Mike as well. When we would do a show and something would make John laugh, and he'd text both of us or he'd text me, and um, it, it was great. And uh, in our business so often, you have a lot of people that reach a certain stature, and they don't really necessarily feel obligated to give back in, in that way. It you know, everybody views that responsibility differently, but it was one that John wholeheartedly and fully embraced, and he wanted that to be a part of his legacy at ESPN. Talking to Jamel Hill, my pal on the Gillette hotline. So anyway, you know, I've told people this before, and I've written this before. I, you know, I, obviously I did start reading you uh, when you were in Orlando, and in fact, at one point, I even suggested that the Daily News hire you as a columnist. And before long, you're sitting with us um, on the sports reporters. And it, it was so clear to all of us, uh, especially those of us who had done the show for a long time, with first with Dick Schapp and then with John Saunders, that, that like you totally got the gig. It, it, it was you, you were you were a natural at television, at least in our kind of television, from uh, the moment you sat down and. From that, uh, you went on to his and her, and then you and Michael were um, or his and hers, and went on to doing a, a, a sports center show. Had you thought of television as a, a as as part of your career arc or your career plan when you know when when you were first writing at Michigan State? Never, um, I never wanted to do television, and Mike, you know this as as a longtime print guy, you know us. Uh, you know, people in print, we often made fun of people in television all the time. And there was sort of a natural rivalry that existed. And I was coming of age in journalism at a time where you didn't need to do television to be successful. Certainly there were people like you and and Bill Roden and Bob Ryan. You guys had successfully kind of remain, maintained your print identity, but you also had uh, this television and radio presence and you know, masterfully were able to to juggle three mediums, but that was not the norm. And I thought once I was in print, I mean, my my longtime desire was actually to work for Sports Illustrated. That was my goal. I wanted to be a long form writer. And as the business evolved, as newspapers changed, um, as they went through various hardships, I began to see just from a financial perspective that it made a lot more sense to branch out 
and to take you know, my voice to different platforms. And so that was truly a career that just evolved. And it turns out that I was a natural at it. And part of the reason I was a natural is because I didn't take it very seriously. To me, doing the sports reporters, the thrill of that wasn't being on TV. It was being in the company of esteemed, respected columnists that I had read you know, forever. And, um, you know, people whose careers I wanted to to emulate, that's what the joy of sports reporters was. And to be able to have this weekly discussion of, of sports in a way that was like meet the press. And so it was the content and the people that sort of inspired me. And as I did more television, um, I came to see that, that the window of opportunity was larger. The ceiling certainly has more in terms of what you can make is higher. And uh, I was very fortunate because I was in a situation where I was usually able to do TV with people I really liked. And in the case of the 6 p.m. Sports Center and his and hers, I did television with one of my best friends. And that's kind of the easiest gig in the world is to be on TV talking about sports with somebody you truly love and respect and is a, is a dear friend. So, um, you know, my evolution was born out of indifference <laughs> slash, uh, you know, not really trying to be a TV person. And uh, I, as I came to see, as I got into it and as it evolved, that television comes with its own unique challenges that are exhilarating. I mean, writing is always going to be my first love, which is why I returned to it uh, after leaving the 6 o'clock Sports Center. But, you know, TV gives you a different kind of thrill, especially live television. Talking to my friend Jamel Hill on the Mike Lupica podcast. He's joining us today on the on the Gillette Hotline. So now, so now you go from um, a pair. I forget how many you were sports reporters you were doing with us a, a year, but we never could get you on as often as we wanted to. Now you're doing a daily show with Michael Smith, and because of that daily show, which you know I, I I've done radio shows, so I know the ground of of you know we grow up in journalism. We don't have to be anywhere except the next game or the next event. And all of a sudden, you got to be somewhere every day. But through that show, you developed a fan in the previous uh, president of the United States. This is true, and uh, it was one of the most surreal moments of my career. In that, uh, you know, Mike and I got the pleasure of being invited to the White House and we were in the receiving line. And uh, as you know, we're thinking of what we were going to say to the president because we didn't know. (laughs) And uh, before I could say anything, he grabbed me boisterously and explained that he watched our show all the time and how much he enjoyed. He watched it when he was working out sometimes. Right. Or didn't he do it in the mornings or? ESPN was his escape, and he's talked about this many times. Is you know he didn't watch, you know the political shows because I imagine that's probably his own, uh, you know, lesson in futility. And uh, he instead chose to dive all in in the ESPN, and that was and he was a big sports fan, and that was the reason why the bracket picks and other sports stuff that he did with us was so natural because he was you know invested in the network as a viewer. And to know that, you know, the president was watching my show, it was one of the many lessons that I've 
I've learned in the in the television industry, especially the last five years, is that you really never know who's watching, and sometimes it could be some of the most surprising, you know, people. <laughs> And it was an incredible lift and moment for both of us because we used to joke that his and hers was Mike and I selling tapes out the trunk, which essentially means, you know, we're this underground ragtag operation. <laughs> we do this crazy television and, you know, somehow we make air every day and people laugh and they enjoy it. And so to know that the president was a viewer, it was uh, while we didn't need validation, that was pretty awesome validation. <laughs> so, so that becomes um, it, it becomes as as much a hit show as you can have in the morning, and 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 and, and then it becomes SC six, and the, the, they took a big swing at ESPN. Uh, 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 John Skipper and Rob King and all of the big shakers and movers up there, and they give you what has had always been amazingly important piece of real estate. At ESPN, they give you the six o'clock uh, Sports Center, and and even understanding that the the world has changed from from the time. But you can remember when we used to eleven the eleven o'clock Sports Center used to be the place. It was like a town meeting of sports every night for highlights and news and information. And and the landscape had changed, but but still. That was a big deal at the time. It was a great experiment that ended up failing for different reasons, which which we'll get into. But it was something I, I I have a feeling that you simply couldn't pass up at the time. No, and um, we were stunned when they came to us and asked us to take over uh, the time slot. And in fact, our, when the idea was sort of softly floated to us, we our first reaction was laughter <laughs> because we never viewed ourselves as sports center hosts. If you had asked Mike and I independently, the one job we never probably would do at ESPN or never could imagine ourselves doing, it would have been sports in our host. Right, not because right, that's not right. a prestigious uh, position. No, that's, you were industry. the bad kids who got the principal's office. Clearly, that's, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> well, it was mostly because we... Uh, you know, we thought of anchoring in the very traditional sense that we've seen from Sports Center as it's built itself into a legacy brand, you know, for the last 30 years. And we knew we weren't that because since day one, Mike and I have always been in commentary since we since we stepped into ESPN from day one, that is. And on Sports Center, that's not what Sports Center anchors do. They don't give their opinion and they do highlights, which we definitely didn't do. And so, you know, we did a lot of goofy you know, kind of fun and, and and also compelling television in terms of the type of conversations that we had. And and while you have your favorite sports center duos, the duos don't talk to each other. You know, they're giving the viewer the news and everything. Right. And Mike and I, right. the strength of our show was always our chemistry and what we said to each other. So it was going to be massively different out of the gate than what people were accustomed to. And I, I always tell younger journalists this and aspiring journalists that you you should always, at different points in your career, take jobs that you're not quite certain if you're if you can do it. Take something that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And while we knew we could anchor and do some of the traditional sports center things, that this was a big, equally big risk for us because we were stepping into an entirely new genre and a new brand in a new time slot with a different type of viewer. And we, our goal and intention was to do it our way. And so 
um, yeah, I mean, they, they took a, a big swing and we took a big swing and a big chance, but we were never going to pass that up. Jamel, so when, when you look back on the experience, uh, uh, this is a two-part question. One is, in your view, what happened? Okay, was it strictly ratings or was it, and we'll get to the controversy with Trump, or was it a different philosophy and, and, and shifting people who then had their own more traditional view of what they wanted SportsCenter to be at 6 o'clock? It was, it, it was a lot of things. Um, it, it's a long list, you know, frankly. And it, it's no one... It's a podcast. I got nowhere to be. So you, you go through <laughs> as much or as little of it as you want to. That is true. This is a different format. It, uh, I think um, out of the gate, we made some mistakes. And I mean, before we ever you know, went to air. I don't think we had enough time to really figure out what the show was because uh, we left his and hers in December. And we uh, we went on a media tour. We did a couple shows from the national championship. And next thing you know, we're starting the day after the Super Bowl. Right. I was a little uncomfortable with the timing, uh, to be frank, because it didn't feel like we knew what the show exactly was going to be. We knew, you know, they knew the chemistry we had, but what is the show? Uh, so I, I think that kind of got us a little bit behind. Um, you know, clearly there, there was a lot of marketing and, and excitement and, and buzz that we generated before we ever aired. But I think people got the impression that the show was not going to be about sports. And so from the very first moment we aired, we were fighting narratives that were untrue about our that show. That you were going to reinvent the wheel. That, there, yes, Correct. you're 100% right. There was that perception out there. Yes, it was the perception that we were going to come out there and do TV um, while doing backflips. Like, that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. It was going <laughs> yeah. to be sports center, although in a different way, because it was going to be a conversational sports center where the two hosts um, were doing most of the talking to each other. Um, so I think that those perceptions were hard to fight. And we also got thrown into the mix of a very volatile time at ESPN because shortly after we took air, there were layoffs and a lot of people, um, you know, they used that opportunity to shoot even more arrows at ESPN. And because our show was so different, we got swept up in that narrative. And all of a sudden it became that we were the poster children of everything that was wrong with ESPN. And because of our presence on the six and the money they poured into the six and invested in us, that that could have been better spent on, you know, better journalists or better personalities when we had zero to do with that or any of those decisions that one is not necessarily related to each other. If, if we were never on the 6 p.m. sports center, people were going to get laid off. It didn't matter. But people don't process it that way. And so that became a very, um, you know, convenient narrative to push. And, you know, frankly, Mike, there was a lot of racial undertones because while there have been black anchors on SportsCenter before, there never quite been black anchors like us. And um, we, and that's not to say that, you know, that that um, uh, impacted some to some degree, how the viewers saw us. Um, although there was a little bit of that, and that's to be expected. That's something Mike and I have dealt with our entire careers. But it certainly impacted how we were covered a lot of times and how our show was viewed. And even before you had certain people banging 
hard that liberal drum, people just saw two black people on TV and they just started saying it. And it was just like, why are you saying this, that we're the, the woke center and all this? And you're only saying that because it's two black people. It has nothing to do with our actual, you know, content. Um, so it was that. And then, of course, um, sort of midway through uh, the time that I, you know, I was there, uh, there was a change in leadership. Somebody different took over Sports Center. And uh, they had a different way of doing things and a different way they wanted to do things. And it was the equivalent of being, you know, drafted as franchise quarterbacks and then your GM and your coach get fired. <laughs> you know, you they might have, the previous regime drafted you because they wanted you to be a read option quarterback. And then suddenly you have a new regime that wants to run the pro style. And we didn't get into get into it to run the pro style. Um, and so there was this gravitation slowly but surely back to the traditional sports center, which did not play to our strengths at all. And it's not to say we couldn't have done it. We could have done it, but we got no fulfillment and joy out of doing it because that's not what we wanted to be. That's not who we were at the core of it. And so, um, yeah, we were having a lot of creative differences behind the scene. Uh it was not enjoyable, I'm sure, for some of the people that work with us because when you're sort of in this, um, you know, this tension is there every single day, it's hard. And admittedly, you know, my controversy involving the president didn't help. And so all of that was thrown into one pot and it made it a very uh, it made it a very interesting 13 months, to say the least. And finally, I got to the point in, you know, late of, of last year where I just didn't want to do it anymore. And, uh, you know, the contract said I could continue to do it. There was no one pushing me out. But it was one of those things where I knew we would never be on the same page. And I had to ask myself, do I want to go through this every day for the next three years? Probably not. And looking at all the things happening with sports and social issues and politics, I felt like I was missing out and that I wasn't in the thick of things like I really wanted to be. And so I went to them and asked off. I didn't want to do the show anymore. And it was heartbreaking because nobody got into this, you know, when we started in 2017 intending for it to be a failure. Nobody wanted that, and I still wouldn't call it a failure, but I realized that that's the perception, and for some people, they feel like that's the reality. Um, but we didn't get in it to do bad television. We didn't get in it to fail, and we didn't get in it to do a lot of the other things that, that happened. Uh, but, you know, I have to be happy with myself and the product that I'm putting out every day, and I wasn't happy, and I wasn't happy about the product that was on air every day because it just didn't reflect who I was or what I got into this business for. Jamel Hill, such an important voice in the world of sports is our guest on the Mike Lupica podcast. Much more with her after this from LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. 
And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Go to linkedin.com slash Lupica and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. That is linkedin.com slash Lupica for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Talking to my pal, Jamel Hill. And again, I, I'll die on this hill. She's one of the most talented people in this business. All right. So six months into this or whatever it was in September of 2017, you uh, make a series of tweets critical of, of the president, including describing him as a white supremacist. Um, uh, it was tied into a, a larger, grander theme about the NFL and, and Jerry Jones. So, so in your words, Tell me what you meant at that. Well, I mean, clearly we know what you meant about the president, but what you were trying to say on social media at that time before you got sent to the penalty box, before they called for your firing from the briefing room at the White House and before the president of the United States took out after you on Twitter. Well, um, it was a pretty emotional time in America uh, at that point because we were fresh off of Charlottesville, which um, even though, I mean, I clearly know racism exists and I know where it exists and how it exists, but that was one of the stark times in my life that I could really relate to what my mother, a child of the 60s, had gone through as she was processing as a as a child a lot of the the racial strife in the country she was 11 when the 67 riots in Detroit happened three blocks from where her my grandmother and my uncle lived and i really understood you know just that level of not just anxiety but just a, almost like a a heartbreak because you realize that there is a significant faction of people in this country who hate you and uh, hate you, hate people who look like you, hate people that are different from them, that just hate. And they brought that hate to an American city, and it resulted in unbelievable tragedy. And so at a time where it felt like, as Americans, we need to be unifying, there were comments that were made by the president that I felt were extremely divisive, that I felt like were encouraging that level of hate. And while, um, you know, the, the tough part about being in sports, and, and this is why I've always admired you, is because you have been able to do both, both sports, social commentary, politics, all three um, together. And so when you're in sports, you have to play this cognitive dissonance with yourself where yeah. the job of the day calls for you to talk about, you know, the impact of Deshaun Watson being out for the season on the Texans. But on your screen and in your, you know, actual life, you're seeing complete chaos in the country that you live in. Right. And you got to act like that is happening somewhere else. And on this particular day, I wasn't able to do that. And uh, it wasn't a situation where I tweeted directly at the president to let him know what was on my mind. I was in a civil, actual, uh, actual civil back and forth with somebody on Twitter who was trying to defend those comments that he made. And it just, you know, I guess I just had reached my boiling point. 
and uh in general the the rhetoric at the time was uh just with the whole tone of this administration had been uh you know had made people like myself people of color feel extremely vulnerable devalued unwanted and so that was all kind of mixed up into that. And there was a very clear and established track record of that. I wasn't speaking from emotion. I was speaking, in my mind, from fact. And so when I made those comments, (laughs) believe it or not, despite the fact it's it's Twitter, but when you're in a reply back and forth, uh, sometimes you forget that other people can be in on the conversation, even though it's going directly to that, that user. And I never anticipated that it would become a... A big deal. I didn't think it would be a deal. Period. And the next day, and the next, and the days that followed, it's a completely different story. Um, it becomes the story of of the nation. And uh, I was just as shocked as anybody. And then another layer is added when um, you know I made the the tweets about Jerry Jones, which ultimately those were the tweets that got me suspended because. And I understand this, and you know, you understand this too, as being a part of the business, is that any time you say the word advertiser, that is a trigger word <laughs> in, in the business that we do. Uh, and there was, you know, the, it well, was they treat it right like after. a human rights violation. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it is. It's a trigger word. And so uh, it is a trigger word for a company like ESPN that does business with a lot of different people, obviously, is in the business with. All the, you know, most of the major professional sports leagues, you know, colleges, uh, that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, this was on the heels of the president calling the players, uh, you know, sons of bitches. And there was a lot of fans, um, mostly fans of color, who were just beating this drum of that the players should boycott and how dare, you know, they let the owners suppress their voices. And I thought it put the players in a really unfair position. I mean, these players have worked to be at this professional level their whole lives. This is everything to them. And for people to casually say, yeah, just throw that out the window. And I get it. It was insulting what he said. It it, it totally tested um, their manhood. It it was a lot of things wrapped up in those comments about NFL players. But I thought it was unfair to them because it put them in a, in a very awkward position with some of the communities that they represent. So my my take, if you will, was just that if the fans are so upset about what Donald Trump has said for how the owners have reacted to Donald Trump, then you vote with your remote. I mean, that's just the way it works. If you're that upset about it, why are you putting the obligation on them to act when you can act? And that um, suggestion um, uh, was, you know, not greeted kindly <laughs> in the in the offices in, in Bristol. And I, and I got it. I, under, I understood it. I wasn't I wasn't mad. You know, John Skipper and I had a very good meeting about it when I the day before I came off a, a suspension. And we've always had him. He and I always had a good relationship. So I understood where they came from, and and I think they understood where I came from. That some things are just bigger. So um, that was you know sort of the autopsy on that. Talking to my pal, Jamel Hill, do, do you believe the controversy that ensued? And again, Sarah Huckabee Sanders called it a fireable offense and the president demands an apology. And we all know what the climate was. I happened to be in London with my wife the weekend. The anthem thing 
blew up. And um, I, there was a game going on there. I wasn't there for the game. I think it was the Jaguars and, and the Ravens and ended up writing a column about, the, you know, when you reference him calling the players sons of bitches, he did it. And, and the context of that was uh, an old-fashioned uh, rally in Alabama, which I described in my column in front of a crowd that looked like an SEC football crowd in 1955. Okay. And so it was his base. It was Trump's base on steroids. And you know, the whole world lost its shit, uh, starting with him over this incident. So I, I, we all understand what, what a hot button issue this has become. And it still is Th- this thing. And, and the, the players, I always felt bad, Jamel, because the, the narrative got hijacked that by kneeling during the anthem and, and engaging in civil dissent, they had somehow shamed the military and shamed the flag. And it was all a bunch of bullshit. Okay. Do you believe that was the end? That controversy was the beginning of the end of your tenure on sports center. Uh, I think it played a role, um, for sure. Um, you know, I think because uh, it, it did put uh, the show in an awkward position because people ask me all the time, do you regret anything? Well, the only thing I regret is the position that it put the show in, the position right. that it put my coworkers um, and, you know, one of my best friends and, and Mike in. I mean, they, they certainly supported me, for sure, but uh I know that they, you know, they took some bullets for me, for sure. And um, I think for a lot of people, even now when people who, you know, rail against me for, you know, what I tweeted, they often say that, you know, that's why I don't, you know, watch SportsCenter because of, you know, it's too political. Not realizing I never said it on SportsCenter, but that's the way the world works now. Something that you say on social media in the minds of a lot of people, it's the same as saying something on television. There's a blurred line there. And I'm sure that uh, in the corner offices and different people around ESPN, they probably felt like the show was never going to get over the fact that that happened. And uh, that people, whenever they watched us or whenever they watched me, um, that that was always going to be in the forefront of their mind. I tend to disagree, but I would, right? I'm probably too biased to see it any other other way. Uh, and I'm sure that made them even more um, faith. I'm sure that made them feel, you know, even more uh, compelled to turn it back into a traditional sports center um, and move it away from it being Mike and I having conversations. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's plausible. Um, but I think it also, at the same time, while it may have given them those thoughts, it also awakened something in me. And it was a blaring signal that I needed to be back in, in commentary. Talking to my pal Jamel Hill, again, I keep saying this, but it's true. Uh, she has become one of the most important voices in our business. Jamel, do you buy into the narrative? That ESPN has, because this became a convenient narrative that that took on a life of its own, that ESPN has been damaged because of a, quote, liberal point of view from its uh, commentators. I think that is very lazy thinking. Um, You know, it's interesting how quickly a narrative can change depending on who's in office, because I didn't really hear a whole lot of this with the last president. Right. Um, I think uh, the awkward position for ESPN is that, um, you know, certainly 
George uh, W. Bush was a big sports fan, big baseball fan, as most people know. President Obama, big sports fan. This president um, is it, sticking his uh, nose into sports in a way that is much different and sort of plays to the, the culture wars that we see today. And it is not in a way that doesn't force you to pick a side. And because of that, that has put a lot of sports networks and and. Uh, especially ESPN, in a very awkward place uh, about how to cover some of this. Uh, ESPN is not a political organization. It's not liberal. It's not conservative. It's ESPN. And it was, I think, people, there are some people that saw a little too much progressiveness, and they and it's amazing how that's seen as being liberal because suddenly you saw voices and personalities being amplified that were women, that were African-American, that were Latino, that were Cuban. Suddenly the face of ESPN changed collectively because that's what happens in this business, right? And so as you see these rise of different personalities and they don't look like the personalities that were there before, for some people that makes them uncomfortable. So rather than admitting that discomfort and how the faces of ESPN are changing, suddenly ESPN becomes too liberal, as if to suggest that the reason that Mike and I got a show, or the reason that Bomani and Pablo Torre have a show, or the reason that Sarah Spain has become a prominent voice, or the reason Israel Gutierrez has become a prominent voice is because ESPN is being liberal and not because we're talented. So that's one of many reasons why I took gross exception to that narrative. And by and large, unless sports and politics were mixing together or sports and social commentary were mixing together in a newsworthy way, it wasn't like they turned into sports programs and we were talking about immigration. It wasn't like we were talking about health care. That never happened. We were talking about sports stories. Like it or not, Colin Kaepernick is a sports story. You can argue it's the most significant sports story in 10 years, maybe even longer. So were we not supposed to cover that? And there were plenty of people at ESPN across the board who had different opinions. You know, Mike and I may have um, had a different view of his protest. Trent Dilfer and other players, they had a different view, too. All of those views were aired on programming. So if you supported it, didn't support it, you could find somebody who on ESPN was voicing that opinion that you felt like represented yours. So it wasn't like we were squelching voices on on either side. And, you know, a lot of the changes that we're seeing in linear TV have everything to do with consumption habits and not to do with politics. Uh, if ESPN is so liberal, how is it that Hank Williams is is singing Monday Night Football if we're so liberal, right? I think you can point to very obvious things that show that we are very much a sports network, but they're just a faction of people that like to lean into that because they won't acknowledge the real reason why they're doing it, which is probably something they don't want to admit. We're talking to Jamel Hill on the Mike Lupica podcast. She's with us today on the Gillette hotline. There have been times since Kaepernick began taking a knee. And and again, people don't seem to be offended that we live now in a country where a young man who came within one pass 
of winning a Super Bowl as a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers cannot get a job because of his political beliefs. But Jamel, I have felt like I'm talking to the ocean when I constantly (laughs) remind people that dissent is as American as the flag that that the who all the who's in Whoville say that Kaepernick is is disrespecting and I I constant I'm on I, I was on ESPN um uh, excuse me yeah no, I'm not on ESPN anymore I'm MSNBC uh, not long ago NFL came up with their new cockeyed uh, anthem policy reminding people that a guy who once refused to step forward for the draft and go to Vietnam, Muhammad Ali, died as as beloved a, 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 an athletic figure as we've ever had in this country. And and Jamel, can you imagine if Ali, a child of the '60s, had done exactly what he did a half a century ago in the current climate in this country? Well, here's the thing, and I pointed that out as well. You know, Mike, to many people that. Um, you know, it's it's amazing that the same people who criticize Colin Kaepernick and want to make it about the flag will openly celebrate Muhammad Ali. Yep. But here's the difference and why you see that disconnect is because history, history showed Muhammad Ali was right. And so it's so much easier to jump on a cause or to to love or beloved someone when you know they were right. The thing with Colin Kaepernick, what it's always boiled down to, it isn't about the flag. It's about do people feel like this cause is justified? Do they believe Colin Kaepernick is right? And the real ugliness is that a lot of people don't. And that's the real issue is they feel as if police brutality um, and the brutality suffered by people of color at the hands of the police, the state-sanctioned violence, they don't think it's that big of a deal. Or they're comfortable with it happening because there's a whole other historical lesson about the fractured relationship between people of color and the police and why that relationship exist and why it's always been tension ridden and violent. And you can, I mean, you can literally trace that all the way back to to slavery and that the police, the very function of them from the onset was always to suppress and oppress communities of color. And the people that want to rail against Kaepernick don't understand that or don't want to understand that. And so it's much easier to wrap themselves up in, in the flag. And in terms of shifting narratives, it's really interesting to me how much, as you said, dissent has always been is American. It's been a part of America forever. That's the whole reason there is an America is because of dissent. But it's interesting how now patriotism itself has now been hijacked to only mean certain specific things. And that how we're defining patriots now in 2018. And allowing Donald Trump to define patriotism, which is kind of neat. Allowing politics to define patriotism, you know, period. And uh, that is what's so disappointing about this, because you've seen it happen so many times. Ali's a great example. Watch how people talk about this 20 years from now. Right. I know. know. It will be a totally different story. It will be as if none of this ever happened. And even at the time with Ali, um, he was hated, very hated, 
people didn't get it right away. It took years. It took, uh, you know, the outcome of the Vietnam War, the carnage. It took all of that, all of those lessons for people to go back and say, you know what? He actually had a point. And even with Martin Luther King, uh, with Martin Luther King Jr., I often show people this, and I've posted it a few times on social media. Look at the polls that were taken during the March on Washington. During that time, the majority of Americans despised Martin Luther King. They thought protesting uh, for civil rights was harmful to establishing civil rights. The majority of Americans. So... If in that time, which seems probably to most of us living today, seems so obvious that no black and white people should not be drinking from separate water fountains, that seems so obvious to us now. It was not obvious then. It was only after he was assassinated. It was only after people began to be more enlightened about the impact, um, the toils of slavery and Jim Crow and you know full equality it was only after all of that that people said you know what martin luther king had a point and now he's considered to be one of the most honorable humanitarians in world history we're talking with jamel hill on the mike lubica podcast more with ms hill in a minute but first a word from geico there's a quick way you could save money just switch to geico all it takes is 15 minutes to find out if you could save 15 percent or more on car insurance and geico offers coverage for more than just car insurance got a motorcycle geico's got you covered got an rv covered got a boat covered how about a homeowner's or renter's insurance you bet geico's got you covered go to geico.com today and see how much you could save that's geico.com this is what my pal jamel hill wrote at the undefeated about the new anthem policy if you could even call it a policy so now we know for certain the nfl really is full of it There is no other way to say it. The NFL sold out its players with this new thoughtless national anthem policy, which it arrogantly believed would not just end the player protest during the national anthem, but also finally move the league into a delightfully neutral, non-political safe space. Under the new policy, players can be disciplined by their respective teams for engaging in protests, and the league also has the power to find those teams with protesting players. The NFL's way of compromising was allowing players the option of staying in the locker room during the anthem as if the players who elect to do that won't be criticized and deemed unpatriotic. It's no secret that the league was motivated to come up with this not so genius strategy because it's scared of President Donald Trump and worried about alienating corporate partners and a subset of its fans. But if the thought this policy would get the president to stop verbally assaulting the NFL and its players, Trump reminded everyone before the ink was even dry on the new rule that he will control the narrative on the player protest no matter what it does. That was Ms. Hill on which this policy is not a policy uh, at all. And, and when everybody says, you know, the NBA players have to stand, they forget one thing, Jamel. That decision was collectively bargained for. By the players and the owners and the commissioner in the National Basketball Association. What has happened in the NFL is both arbitrary and capricious and, and might I add, completely cowardly on the part of the owners. It is pretty surprising because you would think, uh, and I have to admit, and and Mike, you've you've been around the NFL longer than, than, than I have. I was really surprised that they capitulated in this way. I mean, weren't you surprised? Because you've been around these owners before. That The last thing you can tell them 
to do is what to do. I was stunned at this. You know, yeah, but Jamel, seems- here's the thing. It, they bought we, – we, we've spoken a lot during this podcast about cockeyed narratives. They bought into the narrative – that that ratings were down and 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 it wasn't quite as popular apparently as the good lord intended it to be because of these protests. They didn't want to talk about all the stars who got hurt. They didn't want to talk about what a largely dreary product they had from the start of the season until the end until a pretty good Super Bowl. They didn't want to talk about JJ Watt and Aaron Rodgers and I could go on the list of people and how few guys there really are that you want to watch, okay? Even Brady, who's the goat. He is. It's not like watching LeBron James or Steph Curry and, and Durant. They bought into the idea that this was bad for business. And you know, I always quote the great Red Smith, who used to say, "Well, it's a good thing that we took measures here because we didn't want to see owners having to ride a bicycle to work." Okay. <laughs> Once they decided it was bad for business, they would have done anything, including, including sell themselves out to a president who turned around and, as you said in the column, sold them out in a heartbeat. Yeah, I mean, it. it um, it, I don't know, and I don't know why they were convinced of this. I know they took polls, and of course. I would think that somebody in the room would have said, you do know it's a difference between how people feel versus what they're actually doing. And, um, you know, you have younger, younger sons, and maybe they might be a little bit different. But the young people that I talk to today, uh, when you speak about how the NFL doesn't want to address its real problem, which is not the protest, the young people today are not as invested in football as people from my generation. They don't want to spend three and a half to four hours watching a football game. The NBA, uh, it feels much more culturally relevant to them. Those guys are cooler to them. They love that they show personality. They love that they're a little bit rebellious. The game is faster. That's why soccer and the NBA and and some of these sports that play more to um, short attention spans are doing better and are seeing growth increases. That's why. And the game itself, you mean to tell me that you think the protests have more impact and the fact that you guys still can't define what a catch is? (laughs) That's That's going to take a toll. Not to mention, oh, the other thing they don't want to talk about, which is CTE. Now that has been fully exposed, and their role in that has been fully exposed. And so people know that. It's so many of my friends that have sons, and none of them want them to play football. None of them. That's the problem is that their game isn't growing the same. And it's so much easier to blame Colin Kaepernick, who, by the way, hasn't played in two years. <laughs> you know, and there's been very – there were, especially as the season went on, there was very little protesting going on. Very few players were kneeling. But they'd rather blame that than actually look at what's wrong with their game and why it's not connecting the same, and especially the younger fans. Basis, social media. Another thing, the NFL has a very antiquated way of looking at social media. They wouldn't even allow their own teams to run highlights, their own team sites, okay, uh, on social media. The the NBA gets social media. Those clips are easy to get. They don't care. They feel like they understand that being relevant is almost better than rating, even though they're doing a pretty good job of that as well. The the you know the the NFL used to own the off season with off season stories and drama. 
Not anymore. The NBA does. With a single tweet, LeBron could give us six weeks' worth of content. Right? <laughs> People liking so and unliking true. Instagrams can give us six weeks of con- content with the NBA players. And because they have now been firmly entrenched as the cool brand, as a brand where players get to speak their mind, young people are all in on that. They're not all in on the NFL, which feels old to them. And the NFL doesn't know how to address that. This has been my pal, Jamel Hill, over the last hour on the Mike Lupica podcast. And, and if you didn't fully comprehend why her voice is so important, you do now. And you know, all I'm going to walk away from from this conversation is what we got to find a way somewhere. Somebody's got to let us talk more. Cause I miss, um, I, I miss dishing with you the way we used to dish on, on Sunday mornings. Um, you, you know, I've told you this before, you know, I've told you this before. Um, not a, enough good things can happen to you in this business, uh, to, to suit me. I, I, I'm so glad we got a chance to finally do this today. And um, I will be reading you at the undefeated. And I, I hope that writing is giving you the, the same joy that it always did. Even more joy now, which is uh, uh, which is kind of scary because it always gave me a certain amount of, of joy. But um, it always gave me a huge amount of joy, rather. But uh, now having had this experience in TV, it's actually made me a, a better writer. And so I'm very um, excited about some of the stuff that I have coming up and just excited to be, I guess, back back among my tribe of, of writers, though still doing, um, you know, television. And I, I, I'll, tell, I, I'll, I'll say this, Mike, I, I am sorry that, uh, you know, <laughs> during the controversy, I made your work life a little more exciting. No, no, I have to apologize because Jamel knows this, and and again, we we this has been such a fun friendship for the time it began. When I when I when I called her up to write a column in the middle when she was in the barrel that way, I said, "Well, thank you for making more work for me." <laughs> you know, I'll try not to make more work for you. <laughs> the great Jamel Hill on the Mike Lubica podcast. If you listen, we've done more than a hundred of these now. Our, 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 for, for some bizarre reason, our numbers continue to grow and grow and grow it's uh, we have had the greatest guest list of any podcast that anybody is doing anywhere and it's because of conversations like this one continue to download and subscribe go to the go to the uh reader comment plays leave comments on it and uh we'll talk to you next week everybody the mike lupica podcast is produced and distributed by compass media networks in conjunction with hiltzik creative For iPhone users, go to the podcast app and search the Mike Lupica podcast. Click on the Mike Lupica podcast icon and subscribe. For non-iPhone users, you can listen on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast platform. 